came right up. He's like, hey, hello, I, hello, I'm Timothy Ferris and blah, blah, blah. He offered to introduce me to a founder of this company that had just launched at South By and, and their stuff was everywhere and I thought it was really stupid and annoying. It was called Twitter. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to invest. I can introduce you to this guy, Evan Williams. He started, he's really smart. And I'm like, what the fuck would I invest in this stupid idea? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So maybe I should have listened to Tim. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to Scribe Book School, where you're gonna learn everything you need to know about how to write, publish, and market your book. Today's episode is about best-selling book marketing with our co-host, Tucker Max. Tucker is, of course, a number one New York Times best-selling author, three times, actually. And in this episode, he talks about the number one thing that's helped him sell over three million copies of his books. He also tells the story of how he met Tim Ferriss right before he launched The 4-Hour Workweek and how Tucker knew and predicted that book would be a mega bestseller. Then at the end, Tucker offers his book marketing wisdom for authors. So if you ever get overwhelmed by all the book marketing options out there, grab a pen and paper so you can take notes. Here's the episode. So let's start with the early days of your career as an author. What were some of your earliest experiments in book marketing that eventually led to the success of I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell? How did you get your start? Well, I mean, I didn't start in book marketing. I started as a writer. You know, it's funny. Authors ask me all the time for, because, you know, I've sold so many books or whatever that like they ask me for book marketing advice. And they always come to me and they say, okay, how do I get my book to sell? And I always tell them, you can't. And then they, they get all confused and upset. And they're like, what do you mean I can't sell my book? Or what do you mean? Like you sold all these books and you did all these tricks and all these stunts. And like, that's how I tell me how to do that. What I have to explain to them is that none of that actually made my book sell. That the reason my book sold is because I wrote things that people wanted to buy. Right. And so I say that I'm like, have you written a book people want to buy? And they, they always say one of two things. Either they say, yeah, of course, man, just assume that the book's amazing, which usually means the book's terrible. Or they look at me like dumbfounded as if they had never even conceived of the fact that they should think about they should think about the, the reader, you know. So that's really the main problem with almost all book marketing is that book marketing does not start when it's time to sell the book. Book marketing starts before you've even written the book. Right. You have got to conceptualize in your head, who is the person I'm trying to reach with this book and why will they care? And if you do not answer both of those questions very specifically and very effectively, nothing you can do will market a book. It's ironic because you paint yourself in your books as this selfish, narcissistic person. And yet here you are talking about caring enough about the reader that they'll actually pull money out of their pocket or pull their credit card out and give it to Amazon to buy your book. How are you able to test whether people are willing to pay for your stories or your information? Fantastic question. The way I did it was by giving my stuff away for free. It's very counterintuitive, but there's two things about free that, that really help. One is people don't value free very highly. 
well, first off, it lowers the barrier to entry to zero. So I guess there's three things to help. So it makes it easily accessible to anyone. But then also because you're not charging, there's no other sort of weird information signal coming in, right? So some things, if it's free, people value, like they're going to, I don't want to say they're going to objectively value it, but they're going to value it based only on whether they want it or not. What you know, Whether it can compete against, you know, 10,000 other things, not whether it's like, competing against a a different chair of a different price, right? So those are the two main things. And then the other sort of thing that you can do that'll really, by by giving it away for free, that'll really show you if people care is if they share it. If someone reads something of yours and shares it with people, especially with the type of people that the book is aiming to get in front of, that's almost a foolproof indication that you've got something super, super amazing on your hands. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Do you have some examples or your earliest examples of when that happened for you? And how long were you trying to hit that point before you were able to do it? Yeah. So the thing to remember with me is that my writing was entertainment, right? So it's a very different thing than someone who's writing, let's say, prescriptive nonfiction. So for example, if you're writing a book on how to be a CEO or how to start a company or, or sort of any of the, you know, quote, serious nonfiction books, it's a kind of a different thing, right? I wasn't writing a serious nonfiction book. I was writing entertainment and I was coming from the perspective of a professional writer. Like the way I made money was selling my words. The goals and the orientation of someone like that is very different then if you you are a CEO, for example, or you're a, a CEO coach, let's say, and the goal of the book for you is to, you know, raise your profile, get you some sort of status and credibility and authority and show people what you know so you can get good clients. They're totally different things, right? So, so for me, early in my career, it was even before I realized I was a writer, man. I would write funny emails to my friends. And my friends would forward those to their friends. And literally before I ever even conceived of the fact that I would be a writer, I was getting my emails forwarded back to me from people in different social circles. Like I would forward them to my, I would write them to my law school friends. And then like my high school friends would send them, they would send me these emails that had, like I'm old enough to remember email forwards. They send me these emails that have like 20, you know, FWD like thing forward things in the subject line and then all the indentations. Remember old school email, right? And, and I would get it and I'd read down. I'm like, oh my God, this is my email. And my friend would, you know, write something like, dude, Tucker, have you seen this? This is so funny. Like this guy sounds like you. And I'm like, jackass, read to the bottom of the headers. I'm the one who wrote it. And then, then my friend, my, literally my friend was like, oh yeah, I guess you did. That's kind of funny. Ha ha. And I'm like, <laughs> like that was the day I knew wow, like my stuff is good and good as measured by other people want to read it and other people want to share it. And it was helpful that at the end of those emails, you were writing, be sure to email this to 10 of your friends. Otherwise, you'll get cancer. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg is going to start charging if if we don't share this. (laughs) Yeah, so the equivalent for like a prescriptive nonfiction, I think for people who like teach specific like informational nonfiction is like do people come to you all the time for advice do people that ask you ask you to come speak do people 
tell you you should write a book? Do people tell you you should write that down? Like, and not just one or two or three. Do you hear this a lot? Do right. other people bring their friends to you for advice about something? Yeah. I you think know? that that is a really important distinction because I'm sure you've seen authors that seem pretty delusional. Like maybe one person <laughs> said it to them politely that they should write a book or something. And so now they're convinced they're on that track. But the repeatedly being put in your face and having others being brought to you, I think is is really important to to gauge. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get a little bit into the tactical stuff. I fully agree with you. You have to have something worth people giving you money for. What were some of the things that you were doing on a daily basis, though, to market your book when I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell came out? So again, it's a little different for me because I'm an entertainment writer and because my stuff is, is just has a different sort of bench. Sure. You know, the things that I was doing that I think worked and that I think almost anyone with a book could do were I definitely reached out to people who had audience overlap with mine and I like did something with them. Like if you, if you remember, I, I know you remember, but Maddox, who had, yeah. he's the guy who wrote the super famous thing, like why your kids suck and he critiqued mm -hmm. the kids artwork. And that was like one of, literally one of the very first massive memes on the internet is like your kids artwork sucks and it became a book and all this sort of stuff he had a massive audience yeah and so when my book came out he did like a piece on his site about like me and we did like an interview and we talked about this and that and like so how did you reach out to him because i mean for a lot of authors, they might think they have overlap with somebody, but it's it can be either intimidating, they'll talk themselves out of it, or they'll pitch them in the totally wrong way. How do you communicate to someone like that? Yeah, so so at, at the time I had my own audience, and so like Maddox wanted to reach my audience, and so it was like very much a thing where we were kind of peers, right? But your question is a great one. How do you reach out to people for whom you are not a peer? And there really is only one answer to that. Actually, that's not true. There's two answers. If you know someone in common, like that, that actually yeah. works great. That's number one. But most people, of course, don't know someone in common. So the only other thing to do is to, in some way, shape, or form, understand like how does my material help this person or their audience, right? Like mm -hmm. in business, how many people want to be on Tim Ferriss's show or want to be on Seth Godin's blog. Like everybody. That's like yeah. literally every single one. Or they want to be on Vaynerchuk, right? Like those are the three. But if they honestly, you know, like we, like, uh, I mean, I have people come through my company, Book in a Box, all the time who have great books, but they're like, you know, about how to, how to structure mortgage deals in Canada. And it's fantastic. They really know their stuff about that. But then their goal is like, I want to be on the Tim Ferriss show. And I'm like, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen Tim ever talk about houses or mortgages or deals right. like that? Well, no, but like, you know, I think his audience could care and I can be the first. No, that's just delusional nonsense. He doesn't care about that. His audience doesn't care about that. And you could be a woman and sleeping with him and he's still not going to talk about that on his show because it has nothing to do with his audience, nor should he, right? Right. Now, so that's the disconnect. That people have this fantasy in their head. Well, Seth Golden's going to care about like you know my 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 book about 
whatever, running a scooter business in India? It's like, no, he's probably not, <laughs> you know? And yeah. it doesn't mean it's, it's a bad story. It just means he doesn't care. Right. Unless you can show him very clearly how you are an example of something that he's been talking about for a decade. And so he can tell his audience something that makes him look good. And you yeah. are just the instrument of that. Right. So let's pause here because Tim actually reached out to you before he was a famous author. You right. were a famous author. He came up to you. Tell the story of how he approached you because I think that's pretty instructive as well. Yeah. So, so it was South by Southwest. It was 2007. It was like the year that Twitter launched at South by. And I was giving a, a sort of a, a panel speech. No, actually not a panel speech, a whole speech about blog the bestseller. And I was talking about like how I did it and whatever. And like Tim was like, you know, well, people who don't know Tim, like, you know, Tim, but most people don't. He was like this like nerdy, not nerdy looking, but just, just hyper like focused, kind of weird looking dude right in the front row. Like he sat right in front of me and like, you know, he's kind of Aryan looking that back then is he had blonder hair that it was. And so he's like kind of Aryan looking, his eyes were super wide and he was writing everything down. And I was like, this guy's either a hyper genius or like a weird Asperger's nerd. <laughs> One or the other, like I remember, like because you couldn't not notice him. He wasn't yeah. doing anything wrong. It was just he, he was very noticeable. And so then afterwards, like he came right up. He's like, "Hey, hello, I, hello, I'm Timothy Ferris," and blah blah blah. And like he had this like script of his intro, and it was like kind of interesting. I was like, "Yeah, dude, like you know, we can talk about it, like whatever." Like he asked me some question. I'm like, "I'm gonna go get coffee. Like some other people are coming. Let's just sit there and talk." And so he, it was him and like three or four people. It was like an extended Q&A. This is back when South by was a lot smaller. And so and it was clear. Tim made it very clear he was smart. But what Tim also did is by the end of the first hour that we talked, he had offered to like connect me with four different people and help me in like three different ways. And to be honest, two or three of the connections were stupid. And one or two of the ways he was going to offer to help were like, I didn't understand. Right. Like, I'll give you one that I thought was dumb and I didn't know why he was offering it. <laughs> this is funny. He offered to introduce me to a founder of this company that had just launched at South By. And, and their stuff was everywhere. And I thought it was really stupid and annoying. It was called Twitter. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to invest. I can introduce you to this guy, Evan Williams. He started, he's really smart. And I'm like, what the fuck would I invest in this stupid idea? <laughs> right. Right? So maybe I should have listened to Tim a little bit more. Like the other things he talked, it was just all like he was very helpful without being like an overeager, like Tim was not approaching me trying to glom on to my fame and to like take a piece of me. He definitely wanted my knowledge and my help, but he was willing to give value to get that. Right. And did it come across as... Like he was just shoehorning these things into the conversation, just trying to do anything he could or or did it seem organic and natural that he would bring these things up? It's funny, like the things that I thought were weird, I felt were shoe i I felt I thought they were weird because they felt shoehorned uh -huh. like like the Twitter investing thing. Like, you got to remember, 2007, angel investing wasn't a thing. Yeah. I didn't really have that much money then. And like, it wasn't really part of the conversation. He didn't just bring it up out of nowhere. I mean, he, he's not socially stupid. He's socially savvy. So it, it had to do with something someone was talking about. Mm -hmm. But it just felt like like a little bit weird to me. But no, like 
the things that he brought up a lot of things that I was like, like, like we were both into MMA and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and he knew a lot of big people in that community. And so like, it was really cool. We did all, all this kind of stuff related to that, which I thought was really awesome. And then here's the thing that he didn't do that so many people do is like, they come up, like Tim had very specific questions for me and not mm. like, Hey, how'd you get famous? It was right. Tell me about this launch or tell me about this thing you did. Why did you do that instead of this? How do you handle this? Why do you handle it that way? Like he had very specific questions. It was clear he knew what he was talking about. And so I felt like I was kind of talking shop with someone who kind of had a similar level of of expertise, at least in the same league, right? Whereas people, to do it wrong, people will come up and be like, hey, how you doing? Let me buy you a beer, why? Right. Uh, you know, let's talk. I want to pick your brain. Get the fuck out of here. Don't ever say that. <laughs> I want to pick your brain is code for I'm going to really annoy the shit out of you and ask stupid questions low for level. hours. Yeah. Low level stupid questions. So tell me, how do I start a blog? You know, like shit like that. That is code for I have constructed a fantasy in my head and you've achieved that fantasy. And so I want somehow for you to imbue that or impart that on me and I have no idea how that'll happen. Those people are the worst and Tim was the opposite of those people. How often do you encounter authors like Tim that have done their homework and and you can kind of see that their book is going to be successful? Because you, I remember (laughs) you actually called that four hour work week was going to be a big hit. And I, how did did. you know that it was going to be? I do immediately. Not, not, not me immediately meeting him. I did not. Like I knew he was a smart guy and I knew he was a hustler. You know, I mean, I I liked him enough as a person. He seemed, seemed pretty cool. He sent me a PDF of the book and I was, I swear to God, I was five pages in. I called him. I said, this thing's going to be a major bestseller. I knew immediately because I knew he nailed the zeitgeist. Like he was nailing things and saying things that I knew a lot of people were talking about and feeling, but no one had really put together in a great form. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example. I mean, I'm not going to say this book is going to be a Tim Ferriss level hit. We're doing a book right now with Joey Coleman. And Joey Coleman has this lecture series and workshop he calls The First 100 Days. You don't know what it's about from that title. What it's about is like how to onboard and manage the emotional relationship of your customer with your product and your company so that they stay your customer forever. And his fucking knowledge is amazing, man. Like he's worked with Zappos, Comcast. Like he's taught Comcast how to go from the worst to like actually now recently they become a really highly rated customer service company in the areas that he's worked on. Like he's amazing, his ideas. And like the way he's talking about them, I think are going to, it is something that is on everyone's lips, right? Yeah. And then once we finally came up with the book title, I'm like, man, this thing's going to do really well. Right. The book title is Never Lose a Customer Again. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is going to do really well. Just like Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never, never, have, eat, never eat Lunch Alone. Yeah. yeah, Never Eat Alone, right? Like, it's not a very good book. Like, no, if but you the title is amazing. Title's amazing. And it hits a certain zeitgeist and a certain feeling. Yeah. Same with never lose a customer again. Same with the four-hour work week. Yeah. The four-hour work week was the thing that struck the right nerve at the right time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this because I was thinking about this recently with Hillbilly Elegy and this book just blowing up for one, because of the zeitgeist, the timing, but two, it became a tool for journalists to understand this part of the country that they just didn't do 
a good job tapping into for decades. <laughs> so right. how much of these mega bestsellers can be attributed to timing, even yours, would you say? How, how Mine, big definitely. Of a yeah, definitely. Yeah. So if timing is a major factor in bestsellers, can that be accounted for when you're coming up with the marketing strategy or writing the book? Or do you kind of just have to hope for the best? It's a little bit of both. So like, dude, if, if I if I could tell you, man, I know what's coming and I can time it. And I, I've got my finger on the zeitgeist. Then I would not have this company. I would well, have that, the opposite company. That's, you know? that's, like, not, that's not really my question, actually. I'm more curious how these authors are able to voice something that's on everyone's lips that no one has said well. And I think you did that really well. I think Tim did that really well. It sounds like Joey's going to do it well, too. J.D. Vance did it very right. well. But I don't think J.D., for instance, had any idea what was coming. No, no, he didn't. Look, man, a big part of it is luck. Like, you got to yeah. have the right thing at the right time. There are so many books that, like, didn't do anything in the author's life or didn't do anything for decades. And all of a sudden, they just hit. Yeah. You know, I think it, it gets back to a larger issue is that the reality is, and I'm going to say this a little bit harshly to make the point, but everyone is a fucking sheep. Everyone. And no one has any courage to say that the emperor has no clothes. To say the thing that everyone sees, but no one, everyone sees and feels, but no one has the courage to say. And so I think having the courage to say that is extremely rare and hard to find in anybody, right? Yeah. But then that also has to be combined with you've got to say it at the right time. So for instance, if a kid just stands on the street with no parade going by and no king going by and says the emperor has no clothes, people are like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to say the right thing at the right time. It's not enough for it to be the right time and it's not enough for it to be the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's just a really hard, it's just like, you know, like how, how many times have you had a conversation and you walk away and 10 minutes later you think of like the perfect comeback? You know? <laughs> the jerk store. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. They're running out of you. <laughs> yeah. It's that dynamic, man. So with books, it's not like a like a, a one-liner. It's more like a window. And that window could be six months or it could be six years, you know, or even longer. Mm -hmm. But it, it's just a matter of, am I going to... I wouldn't focus on that, though. Like, people who are professional writers can't even focus on that. The thing to focus on is being supremely helpful to the audience you're trying to write for. And if you do that over and over, one or two of your books, if you niche your book down, here's the thing, you can always construct a massive hit. You just can't construct a wide hit. Mm -hmm. Like if you narrow your niche enough, you can always, always find a way to say something that is extremely relevant and extremely valuable to a group of people. Mm. Can you explain that a bit more? Yes. So, all right. So I'll, I'll take an extreme example, like a wide ranging book. Let's say I could write a book right now that could tell you exactly how the stock market is going to move over the next five years. That could apply to everyone who invests in the stock market. So that's like whatever, 50% of people or something, right? That's a huge audience. Yeah. That, of course I can't, but, but that's an example. That's like a, you know, four hour work week, whatever, a quiet, you know, all those sorts of books, right? The opposite and to take it all the way to the extreme. Like if you are running around a building you don't know and you've got to pee really bad, then you need to know where the bathroom is. If I know where the bathroom is, I can tell you where it is. And in that moment, that information is extraordinarily valuable to you, right? Mm -hmm. Probably shouldn't write a book about it. <laughs> but like the point is, 
is in between that is sort of where you should fit as an author, yeah. right? So let's say, I'll give you a great example. We had an author who did a book and basically, I mean, fuck, let's just use this. I'll use the same example I always use. The first, our first author, she's such a good example. Melissa Gonzalez, she was a pop-up retail expert. Like she's the consultant for that. And she thought about doing traditional publishing, but like, and she had been kind of been offered book deals, but they all wanted books about retail and about like stuff that would appeal to a big audience because they sell, they make money by selling copies to as many people as possible. And, and Melissa was like, I guess I could write that book, but she's like, it just doesn't feel right. And it's not what I want to say. And you know, like she's like, I have to stuff it full of all this stuff. And so like, I kind of like, we had a conversation. I'm like, well, who do you want to talk to? She's like, honestly, there's, there might not even be 5,000 people on earth who need to read my book. It might not even be a thousand. She's like, it's just, I want decision makers in major retail brands to read this. Hmm. And so we scoped her book down to where it spoke exactly to those people. Because what those people knew, like if you are a, a high level executive at, I don't know, Macy's, right? You knew pop-up and temporary retail and sort of changing retail is important. You know it's a trend because you've heard people say that but you have no idea how to implement it in your business. You have no idea how to bring ideas to your boss that will impress your boss and it will drive bottom line results. Melissa wrote the book for that person. That person, exactly. People who own businesses or high-level executives use pop-up retail to drive their bottom line. And it worked incredibly well for her because for those, she's only sold not even a thousand copies, Mm -hmm. but it's done like millions of dollars of business for a consulting firm and gotten her all kinds of speaking gigs and all these things because it's a massive hit for an audience of 5,000. It is the four-hour work week to Macy's executives, right? right? But that's the thing, is that it's just Macy's executives, no one else. Author Hour is sponsored by Book in a Box. For anyone who has a great idea for a book, but doesn't have the time or patience to sit down and type it out, Book in a Box has created a new way to help you painlessly publish your book. Instead of sitting at a computer and typing for a year, hoping everything works out, Book in a Box takes you through a structured interview process that gets your ideas out of your head and into a book in just a few months. To learn more, head over to bookinabox.com and fill out the form at the bottom of the page. Don't let another year go by where you put off writing your book. It's ironic because that, that's our temptation is to try and reach everybody, but totally that never works. So you need to be super specific. And I'm curious, how did you apply that after you had this mega bestseller, I hope they serve beer in hell, assholes finish first, sloppy seconds, you had this big audience. Did you still have a certain type of person in mind when you shifted to either the sequel or even to Mating Grounds? No, I didn't. It's kind of funny, man. Where I am in my life, maybe 10% of my audience has followed me. You know? Yeah. Like, I created my audience. That? Because my stuff was entertainment. And my stuff was about articulating the stories of a certain group of people who have never been told in public. And right. telling them in a way that were great. And I think I think a thousand people have picked up that mantle and carried it, but they've just they've not done it in writing. So like the chive, you know, like, like I mean, I know Leo and John Russick. Those guys are in every way, shape, and form 
the spiritual successors from I hope they serve beer in hell. They yeah. just they just can't write, you know. Right. So so their stuff is all it's all audio, it's all pictures, it's all that kind of stuff. Like I still think to this day that the highest downloaded podcast is the one where I came on because that's where my fans are now. You know, they're at the chive or they're whatever. That's not all of them by any stretch, but that's like, that's the archetype of my fan is over there. It's just, it's so, it's so different, you know, it's just such a diff. My stuff was entertainment. It was about escapism. It was so different than anything I am or do now that actually points to how well I kind of Chinese firewalled myself, you know, (laughs) like who I was as a person, the books are about me, but you can read all my books and really not know anything at all about me as a person. You just know about these events and how I depict them and the stories I tell, and that people would project themselves in their own lives and their friends into that. That was the yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with the successors to the original hit book, how did those perform sales-wise compared to the first one? And what marketing things did you do to propel them? I still think the most important thing I've done with my books is put a bunch of my writing up for free on my website. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. I mean, like, I think everything else I've ever done pales in comparison to that, except for early on getting a little bit of help from like Maddox and College Humor and some other stuff, just seeding me. But the thing is, my, my, once it's seeded, if your stuff is good, it will spread by right. word of mouth in the community that, that wants it. That's just it. It will. It's got to be good, though. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Why did you transition to mating grounds or mate? I should say. Yeah, yeah. So the the book is now called What Women Want. They changed the name when they they released the paperback. Because it was one of those books I kind of had to get out of me. Yeah. Like I've been asked by guys, I'm pretty good with women and I didn't start that way. I figured it out along the way. The number one question I got from my audience, from my male side of my audience was, how do I do this? You know, not how do I sleep with a ton of women? It was more like, how do I... How do I interact with women in a way where I can get what I want out of women or out of relationships and all that sort of stuff? And so like, and it was shameful because like, I just think our culture does not teach this to men at all. And mm-hmm. so there was a, there, like, there, there's a total dearth of education and into that dearth stepped the pickup artists who I thought were just clowns and scammers and taught terrible lessons. And so I wanted to teach guys like the right things. And that's literally where the motivation came from. It was like, I made a lot of mistakes in creating that and, and in cultivating the audience and all that kind of stuff. For me, it was just focused on doing the right thing. I didn't focus enough on doing the right thing the right way in terms of creating a media business, you know? Hmm. So what did you do that you wish you'd done differently? So here's the thing. If you're going to create a media business, right, then you have to understand you are in the business of media. Like, I hadn't really been in the business of media. I know it sounds weird to say, but, but all my beer in hell and all that stuff, that's why I try to explain to people is like, like all the stuff that I did, all the stunts we pulled and all that stuff, most of that stuff didn't actually work. We got really? attention for the stunt. Yeah, dude, we got attention for the stunt, but it didn't actually drive sales. Like which stunts like, would people pick, pick them? Work? All, the ones that, all the ones that Ryan Holiday writes in his books, they didn't actually work. They got attention, right? So they worked in that regard. But not sales. No, none. Hmm. No. Is that a huge misconception of authors? Massive one. Huge. Yeah. Everyone thinks, oh, if I'm the New York Times, it mean, I like everything's all this amazing things are going to happen. No, they won't. So you got notoriety, yes. attention, 
but it yes. didn't translate to the outcome you really wanted. No. The only thing that ever drove book sales was when people who had audiences that overlapped with mine talked about me to their audiences. Mm. Yeah. That's it. And which is just word of mouth writ large. That's all that is. Yeah. So I'm curious, since you took the tactic with mating grounds of of your own advice, really, which is what are the the things that people keep coming to you for advice on and what are the things that they're bringing their friends to you for? How did that work in comparison to your other book? And I know they're totally different categories, right? Entertainment versus prescriptive sort of. But how do you feel that advice worked out or that strategy? Well, so, I mean, listen, the book did, it did pretty well. Like it didn't blow up and become a huge thing. Why do you think that is? I think it's because, number one, we missed the window. Like the window to write that book would have been when the game when came the out. game came out. Yep. Yeah, right. yeah. So so number one was we missed the window. Number two is the just the deep misconception that information is what these guys are lacking. Just think about it like with food and diet. Yeah. Like there's this conception that fat people just need to know what to eat, you know, and they won't yeah. be fat. That's total nonsense. If you are overweight in America, it is a psychological issue. It's not a physical issue. You have an issue with food or exercise or some combination of those things. And weight is almost invariably, it's some, some connection with that. It's pretty much, for the most part, not information. It is habit. It is sense of self and identity and all those sorts of things. And the same thing is true with dating advice. Like, and here's the thing, Charlie, because you, you were around with this and you, you helped if I had wanted to create a business out of it, I could have. Mm -hmm. And I could have created a massive information business. And I could have done boot camps. And I could have done coaching. And I could have all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I did not want to create a business that was... I just... Even if I did it with the best of intentions, yeah. it felt exploitive to me. I did not want to do that. Right. Yeah. And it can be a difficult audience. I mean, you and I both know people who do have businesses taking care of those types of clients. And it's it can be very entertaining, but it can also be emotionally exhausting. So I'm still kind of curious about the zeitgeist piece of this, the timeliness. And I don't want to dive too much deeper into it. But I am curious, do you keep tabs on what books are moving on Amazon to get a feel of the no, zeitgeist? No. That's backwards looking. Could you imagine driving your car looking in the rear view mirror? Doesn't make any sense. Unless you're uh, going backwards. Well, it, because of the amount of time that it takes to produce a book or what? Yeah, that's part of it. It's also too, it's just that most books are late to the party. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, I, th I like to recall the story of the person who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey and how that started because they noticed that the Twilight series was doing so well. So they wrote basically vampire porn on no, forums. Dude, that started, no, 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 no. Fifty Shades of Grey started in the the Twilight fan fiction Yeah, forums. in the forums. Right? But, so they they were, didn't notice anything. She was just writing. Those fan fiction forums, dude, are massive. They're like a top right. hundred site on the internet. Millions yeah. of people write that stuff. Hers just happened to take off. And mm -hmm. so she just rolled the, she rode the wave. That's right. it. Yeah. And so she was, again, giving her stuff away for free and paying attention to yeah, the exactly. response. So yes. Let's, I mean, the people listening to this are mostly business thought leaders, right? So where can they 
have that experimental playing ground for their ideas and, and measure the results? I mean, lots of places. The best place to experiment with selling something is to the customer you want to sell it to. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Like that's, that, there's no other answer. You could use lean startup principles. But look, here's a great way. Like you want, there's a million ways to test this. You're thinking about writing a book, put up a landing page or Facebook ads that, that are like the title of the book or that are like a webinar teaching that or that are free seminar, whatever. Mm-hmm. See how many people opt in. See how many people want it. See how many people care. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, that's just the beginning. There's so many ways to test his ideas, but the best way is see if you can sell copies. Like you don't even have to have it. You don't have to take their money. Just see if people click on the buy thing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's great. So let's transition since we're running up on our time here to doing some of the book in a box clients who've been on, well, not all of them book in a box clients, but some of the ones who've been on author hour so far and let's just do a quick brainstorm of how you might market their books if you were in their shoes. So we'll start off with Dave Basulto, who was last episode. He wrote Life Camera Action, and he's the inventor of the iographer, the device for shooting. I have one. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote this book. He told me that he wanted it to be his business card. So... What would you tell him in order to get the most bang for his buck with marketing his book? I would tell him, and I think I actually had this conversation with him because I think I did his sales call, is the book needs to be the instruction guide on not necessarily, it will be in effect how to use the iographer, but what the book needs to be is teaching me how to use this phone to take the videos I want to take. Right, Because that's the problem that the iographer solves is I want to take amazing videos, but I don't want to have to learn anything about cinematography or Mm -hmm. cameras or whatever. I want to just like take them super easy. So make it as easy as you can for me. And so the iographer as a product fits around your iPhone with a lens and everything. And then the book just needs to be like super dead simple. I'm going to walk you through exactly how, how to take amazing videos, you know, like in the simplest, easy way possible. Mm -hmm. And since he has the book finished and it's his business card now, who do you think he should be like, if they're business cards, who do you think he should be mailing them out to people or? So the point is to basically get people into his ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. if I were him, I would be thinking, first off, he's already sold a bunch. So you can go look like not books, but like he had the iographer before he started the book. So go look at who are your customers, like who is already buying from you, right? And so let's, I'm going to make up a couple groups. Let's say like mothers, you know, like everyone wants to take videos of their kids. Video equipment seems intimidating. The agrifer is like advanced video equipment, but for moms, right? Mm -hmm. So like, there's no reason he can't get in touch with a bunch of mommy bloggers, a bunch of whatever, like send them sample, like iographer samples, send them the book let them use it, post the videos, do a rev share with them. They, they recommend it to their audience. I mean, he should be crushed with that. Yeah. He could also go straight to YouTubers, like the people who have the lowest quality YouTube <laughs> videos but have audiences, give them free iographers, send them the book, teach them how to use it, go forward from there. Like 
Then I'd also, I'd also go to, I bet you there are, I know there are people who like kind of specialize in teaching like intro video stuff, not the advanced stuff, just like, you know, how do I shoot any videos for anything? Like really, really basic stuff. Those people who specialize in that go to those people, you know, Mm -hmm. like those are three audiences I can think of off the top of my head that would probably love the iographer. So he needs to connect with the people who lead those audiences and then give them his products and content so that they can, their audience is ravenous for material. So give them something that that their audience wants, show them how this thing I've made is gonna help their audience and they will share it with their audience because it'll make them look good. Even forgetting like a rev share or affiliate split, it's right. going to make them look good to share yeah. this. So that's why they're going to share it. Yeah. And so many of those people, if you just give them the gift, they're going to be so blown away by it that they'll promote it for you. Yeah. Unless they're big and they're used to right. that, they will yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Perfect. So how about Lawrence Bensdorp, who wrote The 30-Minute Stock Trader, and Lonnie Ogalnik, who wrote The Heart of a Beast, From my understanding, both of these guys have financial firms that a side benefit to readers would be, oh, they have a relationship with with the author now in their mind, and so they want to work with them. What would you tell them would be the wisest move if they're trying to reach financial people? I think their audiences are different, if I remember. Like, yeah, because it, dep- yeah. it depends who you're trying to reach. You're right. We have a ton of clients who are in finance who are trying to reach clients. Like they want the book to get them clients. And then we have other people who are trying to reach people in finance. So it's different. Like if you're in money and you want clients, you know, to give you more money to invest basically or protect or whatever, then the template is very, very simple. Ask yourself, what do you know like what problems are, are your potential clients facing and how can you help them solve them? And then write the book that explains to them exactly how to do what you do, which people are like, what are you talking about? I can't tell them how to do what I do. Then they won't come to me. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. We literally wrote a book called the book in a box method that tells you exactly how to do our process. It's right. so good. Charlie, like we actually, I had a ghostwriter, a guy who charges 40 grand for ghostwriting books, emailed me the other day. He's like, dude, thank you so much for writing this book. It has revolutionized my process. I can do that's twice great. as many books now. Oh, wow, <laughs> I was laughing. That's amazing. Yeah. I know, I know, right? I'm like, you're not really our audience, buddy. You know? yeah. But the point is, like, we gave our process away too because what that does is when people are trying to evaluate us, whether they want to work with us or not, if they're considering doing it themselves, they're not our customer. Our customers spend $25,000 with us, right? right? So the reason our customers read the book is because they want to see if we're legit. Right. Do we actually know what we're talking about? What it is, it's a sales doc, but it, instead of selling, we're sharing knowledge. Right. We're showing you what we know how to do And if it seems reputable and it seems great, then you're like, okay, I like these guys. They told me not only how it works, but it seems like it would work really well. And so I'm going to go with them because of that. That's that's why you want to share your knowledge as a professional, just from a client acquisition standpoint alone. Yeah. I mean, I think back on, I mean, chefs used to be afraid to share their recipes. And now top restaurants all have cookbooks. Because the chefs that would share became celebrities and no one knows who the rest are now. Exactly. So it has the opposite effect 
that I think people think it's going to have, which is you gain more trust, more respect, the more that you give. Yep. Okay. So how about Hack Your Fitness by Jay Kim? For my, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's trying to get more media attention, basically. And he's in a very crowded space of all fitness is one of the most crowded genres in literature. Yes, it is. So what you have to do in that space is you've got it. There's only two ways to attack it. Either you say something totally new and different. So you're very unique or you are very niche. And Jay went the niche space. Like Jay basically had a full-time job, like a high-level full-time job in Hong Kong finance. And he figured out how to get super ripped in super good shape, spending like something ridiculous, like 20 minutes a day or something working out, like something insane. But it worked. Like you look at the dude like, Jesus, yeah. that dude's ripped. Like, so you have to take a very specific niche or you have to be totally counterintuitive and new. Right. And finally, or one quick note on Jay Kim, if you want to see the before afters, because they really are pretty remarkable, go to the authorhour.co site and look up his episode. All his pictures are there. And then for the final book is Book in a Box's CEO, JT McCormick's I Got There. Now, this is a memoir. And JT's specific goals were initially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tucker. Family. Family. Legacy piece, right? Yep. Do you... Ever warn authors who say, look, I just want a legacy piece. Look, hey, that's got to be your only goal. You can't start having grander visions of hitting the bestseller list and all this stuff. Do you warn them against that? Or what do you tell them? Yes, because yes. Well, most people who are saying, I don't care if anyone reads it. This is about me. This yeah. is whatever. Then my first response is, well, then why are you writing a book? Right. Like, why publish it? Why not just put it in a drawer? And then like, oh, but well, I well, I do care about some people. You know, then they, they kind of they realized what they were saying before was bullshit signaling. They were just sounding good, you know? Mm-hmm. JT was actually not like that. JT really honestly did not care about selling copies. He really honestly cared about telling his story to his family in a very real way. And because of that, because that really was his goal. We were able to get him to really open up and to really be honest. Because like every time he didn't want to talk about something, I'd just be like, well, okay. Like you just want Ava to never know the truth or what? Yeah. Ah, all right. All right. And so like that's kind of how you got, got it. And he opened up and did an amazing book because, because of that. Now, I mean, it's, not, it's perfectly fine to write a book for personal reasons, not business reasons. But if you're going to spend 20, 30, 50 grand... You just need to be very clear that's what you're doing and be very clear that money's not coming back. It's not money coming back. It's going to be an emotional feeling, a connection with your family, things like that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. If you found this valuable, it would mean a lot to us if you shared it with somebody who is trying to write a book. And beyond that, you can support the podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned because we have a lot of good stuff coming on Scribe Book School.